0: while you're turning to Nehemiah chapter (coughs) 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm going to sing a little chorus that many of you will recognize. The joy of the Lord is my strength The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I wasn't sure how many of you would know that or would sing along, but if you're like me, I grew up going to church as a little kid, singing that song in children's church or in Sunday school. Uh, That phrase, the joy of the Lord is my strength, is in our house right now, uh, in a picture, in some artwork. I think this is a phrase that we often say or that we often think about. But how often have we remembered that that phrase, the joy of the Lord is my strength, comes from Nehemiah? So that's what we're going to see this morning, Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to get to see the context of this verse. And we've seen a lot in Nehemiah during the seven times so far that we've gathered around God's word in the book of Nehemiah. And we've seen how the Lord has worked to bring his people together through Nehemiah to build the walls of Jerusalem, to rebuild this burned out, broken down city. We've seen how God has truly done miraculous things, even in some ways through what we could say are ordinary means. I think it was just last Sunday, we remembered how sometimes people feared God, they, they saw God for who he is when he did miraculous things with walls like in Jericho, knocking those walls down in an instant. But here we see that the, the people, the nations who did not know God feared the Lord, they saw who God was through, you could say, ordinary means as God worked in extraordinary ways through his people as they built these walls in 52 days, something that nobody thought could be done. So at the end of chapter 6 last time, if you have Nehemiah 7 uh, or ch- chapter 8 open, you can see at the end of chapter 6 last time, we saw that the work on the wall was completed. But what we see now through the rest of the book, and we'll come back to the wall. They're going to have a wall celebration later. But what we see as we go into the rest of the book of Nehemiah for today and a couple more Sundays is that even though the work on the wall was completed, the work in the people was far from completed. And so Nehemiah is now going to turn his attention to building up the people that live within those walls. And there's three things that I want us to see from Nehemiah chapter 8. This is probably my favorite chapter in the book of Nehemiah. In many ways, it was kind of an intimidating sermon to prepare because There's so much in here. There's so much good stuff about God's word and about the joy that is found in knowing God's word. But I had to boil it down to just three simple things. And so I want us to see these three things that I think beautifully go together in this chapter. First is understand the word. Second, we'll see rejoice in the word of God. And then lastly, obey the word of God. So we're going to read the whole chapter as we go through. If you don't have Nehemiah 8 open, I encourage you to Pull that up on your phone or uh, in a pew Bible if you have one under a chair near you. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. First, let's see the importance of understanding the word of God. Verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. I will never forget one of the first times that I preached in Mexico. I was getting ready to go up and preach, and I had only been told a couple of hours ahead of time that I was going to preach, so I was a little nervous. I didn't have any sermon notes with me. I just written some things out in Spanish the best I could, on kind of on the back of a napkin sort of thing. And so I, was, I had committed to it, told them I, I would bring the word to them. And uh, so I was walking up to preach, and as I was walking up, the people started to sing a song that I had never heard before. And I don't remember the words exactly, but they were all singing loud and clapping, and the words were something along the lines of, the messenger from God has come, and he's bringing the word of God. And I remember praying as I walked up there, Lord, this better not be my words. These people are expecting your word. I have to bring them your word, Lord. What else can I bring these people I don't even understand their context and what they face day to day, but you understand, Lord. Help me to give them your word. We see that same idea here with the people as they've gathered together after these walls have been built. You notice what they're saying in verse 1. They're telling Ezra, bring the book. Don't bring us your ideas, Ezra. Don't bring us your ideas, Nehemiah. We've had enough of that. (laughs) Bring the book, Bring the word. Teach us God's law. They have a hunger for God's word. And I want you to notice who's there also. Notice in verse 2, both men and women are there. And in fact, in the middle of verse 2, we notice all who could understand what they heard. Kids are there too. Many of you know I taught Nehemiah this summer first uh, before I decided we would go through it in church here. I taught it first at a summer camp to third, fourth, and fifth graders. And I loved teaching Nehemiah chapter 8 to them because I challenged them and I want all the kids in the room as well as the parents and grandparents to hear this as well. And I challenged them. I said, you know, kids, listen, if you can understand long division, if you can understand how volcanoes work, then you can understand God's word. Sometimes We think that God's word is boring or that God's word is somehow above us. But we understand all of these other things that we study and that we expect kids to understand. They can understand God's word. They can get something out of the preaching and the teaching of God's word. Now, there's always balance, right? Um, Some have tried to use this verse, verse 2, as setting a rule for whether or not you have children's church. I've heard that multiple times and I think that's going a little beyond the point of the passage cuz I want you to notice that if we go there notice who may not be there which are the kids who can't understand so you have that side to it also but what I want you to to not get hung up on who's there and who isn't there what I want you to notice is that rather than setting a certain age for kids for when they should or shouldn't be under the preaching of the word we let the parents do that that's why we tell the parents If you're, or we tell the kids when they're dismissed for Children's Church, if your parents would like you to go, you may go. Otherwise, they're always welcome to be in the whole service. But what I want you to to walk away from that in verse 2 with is that sometimes we need to raise the bar for our kids. If we expect them to, to learn by being in school for 35 hours a week, then we should expect that they can learn something for a couple of hours about the Word of God. And I found kids will rise to that when we have expectations for them. But notice also when they're doing this. I had never seen this before. Look at the end of verse 3. This is on the first day of the seventh month. Why does that matter? Well, just as the seventh day was the Sabbath, the day of rest set aside for God, just as every seventh year was a special year when debts would be released, and many other things as well. Also, the seventh month was a special month for God's people to come together and they would even enjoy food together in the sense that the idea was that they were enjoying fellowship with God. They were eating with God, you could even say. Leviticus chapter 23 explains this. And what's what's happened already that Nehemiah doesn't mention is at the very beginning of the seventh month, uh, there is the Day of Atonement. And so it seems, as far as we know, that they've already celebrated the Day of Atonement. They already have the temple. Remember, Ezra helped them rebuild that. Nehemiah was helping them rebuild the wall. So there's the Day of the Atonement, and then there's the Feast of Booths, which we'll explain at the end of Nehemiah 8. And Leviticus 23 explains why the beginning of the seventh month is important. Listen to this. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. Saying, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. So, this special time, sometimes we read Nehemiah 8, and we get the idea that it was spontaneous. And I think what we see here is we see that they planned this out. They knew as they finished the wall that the seventh month was coming and this was supposed to be a special time for God's people. So they built this platform that we'll read about in just a second. They prepared for this. And yet at the same time, we also see some spontaneity in the way that the people reacted to God's word. It seems that it was spontaneous saying, bring the book, bring us the book, teach us from God's word. Take a look at verse 3. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Do you notice? They weren't there just like any other day. First of all, they were there from about 6 a.m. until noon. Six hours hearing the word of God in the special. Time where they're recommitting themselves to God. And not just that, but their ears were attentive. Do you notice that in verse 3? Their ears were attentive. You get the idea that they're leaning forward. They're wanting to know what this word has to say for them. They want to hear from God. Verse 4 And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that day that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Anniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah Mishael, Malkaijah, Hashum, Habadana, Zachariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Some Puritan churches uh, would still follow this same practice. I think they got it from here, the best that I can tell. And the idea is that when the, the pastor would preach the word of God, the elders would sometimes flank him, stand there, and the idea was as far as this is the word of God, uh, we are holding you accountable to this, and we are holding ourselves accountable, and we stand behind the word of God. And it seems that's what the leaders here are doing with Nehemiah. And then in verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Notice the respect given to the word of God. When he opened the word, all the people stood. This is where we get our tradition of standing when the word of God is read. You might have wondered, why do we stand when the Bible is read? And this is where we take that tradition. We want to show a certain kind of respect when the word is read. And when Ezra blesses the Lord, as he opens the book of the law, the people agree with him. That's what it means to say amen. They agree with him that this is God's word. And they even lift up their hands and bow their heads to worship the Lord, some with their faces to the ground. What I want you to notice is that... As we think about understanding the Word, the importance of understanding the Word is that they came ready to understand the Word. The people are ready, and they want to hear from God. They want to hear from the living God. They know these are not just the words of a man when we read the Bible. And then notice what happens next. And this is where I really say we need to understand the Word of God. Notice how they help them to understand it. Verse (coughs) 7. Also, Yeshua, Bonnie, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Joseph, Adahan, and Peliah, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Verse of the sense, so they read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. There are probably at least two things going on here. The first thing is that as the law of God is read to them in Hebrew, it seems that Ezra is reading it in the original language, and then because perhaps many of the people had only spoken Aramaic or were not as familiar with Hebrew as they used to be when they had been in exile in Babylon, there's all of these priests. It seems that they were Levites, and they're spread throughout the people. Some believe that There were thousands of people there. We have every indication of that. And they're spread all throughout them. And the idea that I get anyway is that perhaps Ezra would read a little bit in Hebrew, and then they're translating it for the people in Aramaic. They're trying to make sure that they understand it. And then we'll see in a bit, it even seems that from the phrase given, that they're explaining it a little bit. So Ezra's reading it, and then they're explaining it, making sure that the people understand what the word is is saying some of these people had not heard parts of the law read in a long time. Some had, but some had not. When I studied in Israel for four months in college, the church that our study program went to, the song was very unique. Um, never been in a church like it and probably never will be. Uh, the songs were all in Hebrew. Because it was a a church in Israel, so they had decided to make all of their songs in Hebrew, no matter what your language was. Uh, And so we learned some of those songs, and we would learn what some of them meant. Sometimes they would explain a little bit before we would sing it. But when the word was taught, the pastor would preach first in Hebrew for a couple of minutes, and then in English for a couple of minutes. And he would do this for about an hour. So he would talk in Hebrew, maybe two minutes, and then he'd talk in English, same thing, for about two minutes, back and forth, back and forth, for about an hour every Sunday. But that wasn't all. There was it was it It was a large church, and there was a large background, a, a large mixture of people, and so there were a bunch of Russian immigrants who did not know English or Hebrew, so there was a group in one section of the church building where when it was... The word was preached in English. There would be a guy out loud translating simultaneously into Russian. It was fascinating. We loved it. It it reminded us in some ways of heaven. All these different backgrounds, all worshiping the Lord together. And one of the things that I loved about it is that you could think, well, boy, that would be really annoying. You're you're trying to hear the word preached, and the pastor keeps going off in a different language. And then when I am trying to hear it in my own language, there's this person talking in another language. (laughs) But it was actually a beautiful thing because everybody who chose to attend that church had to show love for each other because we were gathered around God's word. We wanted to make sure that everybody understood God's word. We were the people of God gathered around the word of God, no matter what the language was. But also it seems that there's more than just translating the scriptures going on simultaneously here or during breaks in the reading. It seems that there were also priests, these priests that I already read their names, scattered throughout the people who were explaining to the people what it means. Remember, this was a time of revival. They were, they were hearing the word, some of them for the first time, Like I said, certain portions of the law, it seems that none of them had heard before. And so they need this explained to them, excuse me. And they're trying to reform as the people of God in the land and the city that he has prepared for them. They want to make sure that they understand what is read. Listen to Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. This is a fascinating verse. We need to understand the word of God. That's why I have that up there. Listen to how serious Hosea takes it. Hosea 4.6. This is God speaking through the prophet. God says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And then he says, Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. He's talking to the whole people here who were supposed to represent him as the people of God to bring the nations to the true and living God. And he says, I've rejected you people because you've rejected my knowledge you've rejected my word it's hosea 4:6 and then he says and since you have forgotten the law of your god i also will forget your children and if that sounds harsh just read the rest of the chapter hosea chapter 4 it'll blow you away knowledge of the bible of god is not the enemy we just have to make sure that we're using that knowledge correctly And as we increase in knowledge of God's word, and we're supposed to be increasing in knowledge of God, it's not just our knowledge of the word that grows if we're reading it and studying it prayerfully, but it's our knowledge of God that grows. And then what I want you to see as we go through this, we're going to spend just a little bit of time on the last two points, is that as our understanding of the word of God grows, then our rejoicing in God can grow and be real and be sustainable through all of life's trials. And then also our obedience of God's word will grow. But it has to start with understanding God's word. Do you notice what happens when God's word is studied? Hosea 4, 6 says, with lack of knowledge, God's people are destroyed. But what we see in Nehemiah 8 and all over the rest of scripture, all over the rest of church history, is that with understanding, with knowledge of God's word, if it's used rightly, God's people are revived. If you look at history, you look, start in the book of Acts, for example, when the church began after Christ went back to heaven, and you take a look and then you go throughout church history up until today, what you will see is that every time there has been a revival, every time there has been a reformation, it's because The Word of God has been brought back to the people because the Word brings life. The Holy Spirit works through the Word because it's His Word. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains how God used the preaching of the Word in the course of church history to bring revival. He says, what is it that always heralds the dawn of a reformation or or a revival? It is renewed preaching. And then he goes on to explain that the reformation is happened because the word was brought back to the people. The Great Awakening in New England happened because there was preaching of the word of God that didn't turn away from the hard things. The gospel was brought back to the people through the word of God, and the people were given life. And this is an important issue for you to think about because, for example, just this year, just think about the last 12 months. We've had several who have gone off to College, and they need to now find a, a church in their college town. We have a couple, uh, several families in our church who've moved away over the last uh, twelve months or so out of the area, and they now need to find another church. And these are the types of things that I want you to be thinking about when you move away and you have to find another church. Am I am I going to f- am I looking for a church that takes the word of God seriously? Why does our church spend 35 to 40 40 minutes most Sundays to hear the preaching of the word? Why do we have Sunday school where we have smaller groups where we're trying to apply the word and discuss the word together? Why do we have men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies? Why do we even do a short devotional where I read some scripture and we talk about it for a couple minutes before we pray together Wednesday night? It's because the word brings life. The word brings life revival when God's people hear God's word they hear God speaking and when people who don't know God study the word they find out the way they can be saved they find out how to know God so I want to ask you do you know Jesus as your savior do you know him it might be that for you when you read the Bible it's kind of like reading the Encyclopedia Britannica and I don't know if you even know what that is. When, when, I was, when I was a little kid, we had these encyclopedias. And I remember we had the, the world encyclopedia in our home, the smaller version. But in the library, they had the Encyclopedia Britannica. And there's great stuff in there, but it's as dry as it gets. Sometimes that's how you feel when you read the Word. Well, if that's the pattern, every time you come to the Word, then I want to challenge you. I want you to ask yourself, do I know Jesus? Do I really know him as my Savior? Because when you are saved, at the moment that you believe in Jesus to forgive your sins, you are given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is like the glasses. He's like the corrective lenses, the contacts, in my case, that we need to be able to see the word correctly. When I drive somewhere... It says right on my driver's license, I better have some lenses in front of my face somewhere, either in my eyeball or in front of it, because otherwise I can't tell the difference between a moose or a Mack truck. (laughs) And that's the idea that, that we see the way that the Holy Spirit is when we believe in Jesus. The word makes sense to us. We have to grow in it our whole lives. So keep at it. Those days we don't feel it keep at it, but the Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes to show us the life that is in this word. Have you believed that your sin has separated you from God? We're going to celebrate the gospel in just a moment. And the gospel starts with the bad news that our sin separates us from God, that we can't go to heaven because of our sin. We've rebelled against him. But then it goes into the good news, which is what the gospel means, the good news that God saw our situation, he knew our situation, even before he created us, and he sent his son, Jesus, to be the final sacrifice for our sin. So when we trust in him, and in him only to save us, when we believe he died for my sins, and he rose from the dead for my sins, the Bible says you will be saved. Do you believe that? Do you know Jesus? And if you're not sure, then Please talk with me after the service. If you're, if you're not quite ready today, then contact me during the week. I'd love to set up a time to talk with you about the gospel, about knowing Jesus as your Savior. You won't understand the word of God until you know the Savior who became the word. Jesus is the word. Next, just for a couple minutes, rejoice in in the word of God. So we've seen the importance of understanding the word of God. That's the bulk of our time today. No, we have communion, but this is so important that understanding leads us to rejoicing. Take a look at verse 9. It says in Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 9, and Nehemiah who was the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, "This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. He's saying, look, let's have a party. They're crying because they see their sin. But he's saying, look, This is a holy day. Remember what the law said that I just read? He might be saying, this is the seventh month, and this is a holy day to the Lord. And yes, it's good to be cut to the heart by the word, but he's saying, you know what? You also need to see the Savior. Remember, there's good news too, and this is a day of rejoicing, he's saying, because we're returning back to the Lord. So let's Take a a pause in our grief, he's saying, and let's have a party. Let's do what God said. Let's make this food. Let's share it with those who don't have any, and let's celebrate the goodness and the salvation of our God. They had just had the Day of Atonement before this. They had just been reminded that it was a lamb, a spotless lamb, who would take away their sins. So they were supposed to celebrate the fact that their sin had been removed. Warren Wiersbe, I love love some of the things he says. He says, it's as wrong to mourn when God has forgiven us as it is to rejoice when sin has conquered us. Sometimes we we think, oh, it would be really bad to rejoice because I'm caught in sin, but he's saying, you know what? It's just as bad to be stuck in mourning over our sin and not seeing your Savior, not rejoicing in the good news, not enjoying His love for you. We're we're to rejoice in the Lord. And notice what Nehemiah says in verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. There's that famous verse right there. The joy of the Lord. This is the joy that God himself has. This is the joy that God himself has. And now on this side of the cross when we're saved and we're given the Holy Spirit and he now is inside of us, he indwells us, we have the joy of the Lord. We have God's own joy. God is a joyous God. He is a joyous God. Nothing can steal his joy. Lots of things can steal our joy, right? You live in where I'm living? I'm not talking about just Vermont. I mean in this world. There are so many things that steal our joy, but nothing can steal God's joy. So if you have the joy of the Lord in you because you understand the word and because you know Jesus as your Savior, then nothing can steal that joy. I love John Piper's famous illustration. I'm going to adapt it a little bit, of course. If I knock on the door... On our fifteenth wedding anniversary, which is coming up, and I have a bouquet of roses behind my back. Melanie answers the door, and I just have a dour face on. And I say, "It is my duty to give you these flowers." What kind of anniversary do you? Think? Holy matrimony. <laughs> what kind of anniversary do you think that's going to be? But if she opens that door, and I'm just beaming because I can't hold it in, and I say, I saw these flowers, and I just couldn't help myself because I love you so much, do you see the difference there? That's how we're supposed to be with God. When we understand the word, then we are to rejoice in the word. We are to rejoice in the Savior, not... Just because it's our duty, but also because it's our duty to rejoice, or else we don't understand the God of the word. He's more than duty, He brings delight when we know Him. And then notice the end of verse 12. The reason that they're going out and it's like they're delivering pumpkin pie to people who don't have it on Thanksgiving, and the reason that they're doing this is why. Look at the end of verse 12. Because they did this and to make he, they're telling them make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Once again, we see here that when we understand the word, then rejoicing comes. That's how we get the joy of the Lord because the word brings us to our Savior and then we have the joy of the Lord in us. Lastly, just for a moment, obey the word of God. Sometimes what we do is we try to bypass this order, and we try to have the joy of the Lord without the understanding of the word, but that's not joy that's going to last. It might last until your coffee break in the morning, but it won't last when the storms come. It has to start with understanding the word of God, then the rejoicing can come, and then the obedience can come out of that joy because of our love for God. We want to obey him. Take a look at what the people did. Verse 13, on the second day, the heads of father's houses of all the people with the priest and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. So this first day, everybody was there. They, they end this six-hour time of coming back to the Lord and reading the word and understanding it and rejoicing in it by having a party. And then the the heads of the families come back the next day to study it more so they can explain it to their families over these next uh, seven days or so. Verse 14, And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. And I'll let you read on your own later, uh, maybe tonight through the end of the chapter, we see that they obeyed the word of God. And the reason that they did this is because the feast of booths was the festival in which the Israelites would make little shelters for themselves, many in Israel at least and other places around the world, but especially I saw this when I Uh, lived in Jerusalem I saw pictures of it I was there in the spring and heard all about how they do this in the fall Um, saw an example of one in a museum but uh, what they do is they will build these little leafy shelters made out of sticks and leaves and things that they've gathered from the fields and they will live in it for a week why because their ancestors lived in the wilderness for 40 years And they're remembering how God was faithful to them during that time. And so what I want you to see here is the people realize, wow, God told us to do this, and we're not doing this. We need to obey the word of God. Do you see the order there? They understood the word of God. They rejoiced in the word of God. And now they have a new desire to obey the word of God. It has to be in that order. When we were traveling to Washington this summer, we had a long layover in Denver. And I remember walking with Ezra, our our little guy, in the airport during this long layover. We were tired of traveling and tired of waiting. And he saw an ice cream shop. And he was looking at it and just staring. And he started to lick his lips. (laughs) And I said, I know what you're thinking about. You're thinking about ice cream. And he looked at me, he stopped walking, I still remember this. He looked up at me and he said, I'm not thinking about ice cream, I'm thinking about eating ice cream. (laughs) Do you see the difference there? The word says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Understand the word. God says my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, Don't knock on understanding the word. Dig in as much as you can, but dig in to know the Lord, to know him. Do you know Jesus as your savior? We're not saved by osmosis. We're not saved by just being next to something and touching it or just being under the preaching of the word. We're saved when we taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's what gives us rejoicing and that's what gives us obedience. Let's pray. Father, We come before you this morning as needy people,